Ayers on the Road, Parenting in a Modern World. Here's Richard and Linda Iyer. Hello there. Here we are again, another Monday. And we are on the road, aren't we, Richard? Yes, we're in lovely Nashville, Tennessee, or as the locals say, Nashville. Nashville, you can't say Nashville. <laughs> and we're going to be speaking to a lovely group of parents tonight. I hope some of them are country western music singers, Linda. I hope so, too. And I hope they all have cowboy boots on, because that's what Nashville's all about. Absolutely. We've also been in Boston this week. We had so much fun at Richard's reunion. Should I tell him how many years? No, let's just say it's been a long time since <laughs> we finished in the the class of blank, blank, blank. And so we went back for the reunion, reunion and spent a little time with our lovely daughter Sadie, who still lives in the area, we've had we've either lived there or had kids there for a long, long time in Boston, Linda. We have for about 16 years. We're just sad that we didn't buy something, someplace for them to live when we left all those years ago. I guess we were poor as paupers, so we couldn't have done that anyway. But it really is a wonderful place, Boston. Wow. We met so many interesting people and heard from Clayton Christensen, which who many of you probably know, um, was such a fun lecture. He did a lecture, and as you might guess, the room was overflowing of people, so they opened another overflow, and then they opened another overflow, and he just knocked everybody dead. He was fantastic. Well, and one of the things he said, and try to imagine this, just thousands of former Harvard Business School students crammed in listening to Professor Clayton Christensen deliver a message which essentially was, hey, it really doesn't matter how well you do in business. It really doesn't matter how much money you make. It really doesn't matter how successful you are in the eyes of the world unless or if your family is not intact. And the real riches in this life happen to be children and family, families who stay together, families that last and also um, your own integrity. If you come through with your own integrity, he was talking about a couple of classmates, in fact, Rhodes Scholar friends, I think, when he was in Oxford, uh, who've ended up in jail, in prison, because they made some bad decisions right at the wrong time and uh, crucial decisions that they thought, well, just this one time I'll do this, and then it became easier and easier for them to go down the wrong road. So it was moving, an instant standing ovation by everyone in the room at the end. It was terrific. And so our point is that, you know, even here, here you've got people who are thought of as very successful in the eyes of the world, Harvard Business School alumni, flocking to get into a class about family and integrity instead of the alternatives, which were doing business in China, how to invest overseas, how to have more money. I guess what ends up happening is when people get as old as I am, Linda, thanks for making that little innuendo, (laughs) they start (laughs) understanding what really counts, what really matters. And wouldn't it be great if we could all live by our priorities all the time, from the time we're young until the time we're old, remembering that family is what really counts, family is what really matters, or as the great C.S. Lewis said, homemaking is the ultimate career. All other careers exist for one purpose only, and that is to support that ultimate career. Isn't that great, C.S. Lewis? I think it's great. I hope you women out there 
uh, feel good about hearing that because it's just magnificent. It is true. I mean, you know, um, if we're whether we're the work person or the person going into the workplace or whether it's our husbands or both, um, it is we're doing it for our kids. We're doing it for our families. And but, Lin, but Linda, men can be homemakers too. Sure. If you're a home dad, <laughs> of course. Of in course. Fact, we know several of those. They're terrific. Every once in a while, I'll be at a party or a cocktail hour or some crazy thing and someone will come up. And, and it's kind of weird in our society that the first question we always ask is, Ah, what do you do? And right. sometimes just for fun, I say, well, I'm a homemaker. <laughs> and I get the strangest reactions, and it gives me a chance to say, you know, that's what that's the ultimate career. All other careers exist to support that one ultimate career. <laughs> well, you know, the thing that was fascinating about Clayton's presentation, and I don't know how many of our listeners know him, but He's had three major health problems in the last couple of years. He had, he talked at the very first about a stroke, a major stroke that he had um, about a year and a little bit ago, I think, wasn't it, Richard? Yeah, just over a year now. Um, honestly, he said I lost 98% of my my ability to speak. I could, I had no speech left. He I was like a baby. He couldn't recall words. He actually went and bought the Rosetta Stone. Uh, uh, language course for English and started learning English once again uh, in his in his later life and and that really was touching to yeah. people and then he by the way the same year he also had uh, a heart attack and cancer can you imagine in fact Linda one of the good things about hearing him relate some of those difficulties over the last year is it made our little infirmities that we happen to have right now seem kind of minor. <laughs> you should see Linda and I. I'm glad I'm so glad this is radio and not television oh, me because too. we're usually pretty healthy and vital and vigorous. But all of a sudden last week Linda got sciatica so bad a lot of you identify with how bad that pain can be down your back and down your leg and so on. And I, this is even weirder, I came down with gout. Anyone know what gout is? That's where your big toe swells up and gets enormously painful. So the bottom line is neither of us can hardly walk at all, and we're hobbling around like 90-year-olds, <laughs> we and then we're thinking God must be giving us a preview of how it's going to be. 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now. Well, you know, the reason I thought of Clayton is and because of the quote we just said, C.S. Lewis's quote about the homemaker being the great career, because I we had the privilege of having lunch with them afterwards, and I sat with Christine, his wife, and I said, what have you been doing this year besides being a full-time nursemaid? She said, no, no, nothing else, a full-time. We walked every single morning around the racetrack above our, it was a high school track above their house, and she'd say, I, I would point at that and say, what color is that? And he couldn't remember purple. And what do they use that building for? And he couldn't remember what they used it for. But then that very afternoon, she said he, uh, he would spout out a whole class description just from memory for, at the Harvard Business School. And so she said there were just pockets that got things and then other places that just didn't. But bless her heart. Boy, that's part of being the homemaker is supporting your spouse. And she's been there 100%. And I'm afraid I haven't been there 100% for you, honey, because I'm so I'm so crippled up that I haven't been able to help those toes very much. <laughs> well, but, that's the hard thing about both having these little nagging injuries at the same time is 
I'm trying to help Linda walk downstairs, and I can barely walk down them myself. But enough of our enough, enough. personal infirmities. Why did we even bring it up? Just because what you realize more and more and more in life is that family is what matters. And uh, we just are here today to talk a little about how important it is to keep the, fi- the family in highest and first priority. We've been doing some writing lately on on the myths that exist and that sort of surround um, raising family and children and so on. And there are really are a lot of myths out there that get in our way and kind of undermine our families. Don't you think, Linda, in many ways? Like, for example, one of the myths is it, it requires, absolutely requires, two incomes to raise a family this day. You cannot do it on one income. Well, there's no question that these are tough economic times. There's no question that sometimes you can buy a lot more for your family and for yourself if you have two full-time incomes. The dilemma comes in with families who have little children in the home, preschoolers, and yet still feel that both parents have to work full-time. And in some cases, they may be justified. But what bothers me, and you can say if it does you too, Linda, is is to accept the traditional wisdom that you have to always have two incomes. Because guess what? Someone will lose a job at some point if you follow that philosophy, and you'll be trying to stretch one income over a lifestyle that has now expanded to consume all the earnings from two incomes. And so we always advise people, if they're able to have two incomes part of the time while they're raising their children, great, if that's what they've chosen to do. But do their best to live on one income so that if one of the other, one of the two, loses their job for whatever reason, the family doesn't go bankrupt. But anyway, one of the, that's one of the myths. And, and another one that Linda's so good at talking about is that uh, – you know, you read it all the time in the paper. It costs $500,000 to raise a child. You've seen numbers like that where someone has calculated what it costs to raise a child. And some people say, oh, well, then I couldn't possibly afford to have a child. Which is absolutely crazy because, you know, that they don't take into account that you don't have to buy everything at Nordstrom for your child. You don't, I mean, your children do get to an age where they can help with the family economy. Um, there are so many things that, People don't realize. I mean, I, who wrote that? I mean, it's probably somebody on the East Coast. Oh, you see it all the Manhattan time. Manhattan or something where they uh, where the price of living is so expensive that it is quite incredible. And but, the la- the third myth we've been talking about is that uh, you know it's impossible to prioritize your job and your career and your family at the same time. Well, it might actually be true that it's if if you can only have one first priority then it may be impossible to have two by by definition. But uh, it is not impossible to put your family first and still be not only a successful but an aggressive type A person, if that's what you are, that moves up in your career and, and does your very, very best. But sometimes it takes enormous adjustment to be able to do that, doesn't it, Linda? It does, and especially with our economy the way it is today, the recession, you know, we have... Lots of family members, not our own, but other family, well, actually some son-in-laws, a couple of son-in-laws that don't have a job right now and or are looking for other jobs. And it really is um, a scary world because there's so many ups and downs and you just never know what's going to happen. But 
if you're determined that you're going to make a go of it with what you've got, it makes a huge difference. Maybe just a couple of case studies would be useful to you on that. We know one fellow, he's a good friend of some of our children, who is a very high-priced, fast-track attorney who's working for a huge law firm in London. And like many who work for big firms, uh, law firms or investment banks or whatever, the norm is he's basically expected to stay at work till about nine at night. That's about the time people leave. Oh, I think and 10. So, I, they said he doesn't get home till 11 or 12. Yeah. So, so, so for a while, it was like, I, I've got to make a choice between my job and my family because I'm not even seeing my children at all. When I get home, they're already in bed. But sometimes creativity is the key. And he found that by actually working a little harder, he he couldn't go home sooner because that was just the established norm and he would have lost his job. But he found that he could come in later because nothing really got going until about 10. So he, their whole family changed their pattern. They got up a little earlier. They had breakfast together. They do. They have breakfast together every morning and he takes the kids to school and they have family home morning instead of family home evening and so on. The point is he made the adjustment and you can find examples like that all over the place. It is not, don't let anyone tell you that you can't prioritize your family even though you're working very, very hard at a job. Now, when we come back, Linda, let's talk a little about What we're going to be telling this group of parents about tonight in Nashville, Tennessee. We'll do that. See you in a minute. Hello, we're back. Richard and Linda Iyer speaking today from On the Road in Nashville, Tennessee. You know, we've been here two or three times, and we have loved it every time we've come. It's a wonderful community. Everybody that is here loves it, too. Great food, great people, and great honky-tonks. Great honky-tonks where the country... When you come to Nashville and you think you're talented in country music, you start on the sidewalk, and if you're good enough, you get to start playing inside in the honky-tonks. And then if you're good enough, you start playing in the auditoriums. And then if you're good enough, you get to the grand old Opry, right, Linda? I think that's the order. That's the order (laughs) it goes in. So anyway, um, we were having lunch earlier today, just an hour or two ago, with the chairman of this event. This is a parent event tonight, which is another sign that they're doing well in Nashville. They're having big parenting events. But uh, he was telling us about his two daughters, one ten. He and his wife were telling us about their 10-year-old and 13-year-old daughter and how, how hard they've been working to keep these kids from being in a bubble the bubble that's created by by middle-class parents who try to give their kids everything, who try to essentially get them in the best private schools and have them wear the best clothes and give them a nice big allowance and be sure they have all the latest gadgets and be sure that their friends don't have anything they don't have and so on and so forth. We call that, as many of you know, the entitlement trap. And he was telling us how he'd tried to end it, and he'd come up with a pretty good system, hadn't he, Linda? He had. They were very clever. In fact, they had heard us speak about four years ago when we were here. And, you know, as we, as always happens, we just hand out a good idea, and they made it a lot better. It was awesome. 
um, they have their kids, they have, uh, what would you call it? They have, it on, have them on a wonderful system of ownership so that they have specific jobs that they need to do. They, they, they made a little round um, disc thing that they could put bolts on. And I mean, it was, it's really very clever. Well, but the kids, <laughs> that's a little confusing. That is confusing. I know if you have A round disc sure. thing they can put bolts on. We want you all to go out and do that today. <laughs> it's just a clever little device. Well, so that they pay. could um, have a family economy. Everybody knew exactly what was expected, <laughs> and, you know, putting those bolts on was just very satisfying. <laughs> well, to clear the confusion up a little, it's a pegboard, and they, the kids have certain jobs they have to do, and they, they, they're actually washers, Linda. They slide the washers on these oh, pegs. Oh, yeah, that's right. They were signifying, not Signifying sure things. um, yeah. which things they've finished and gotten done. And, and the, the main point, of course, is that these parents are bold enough and strong enough to say essentially to their kids, these Imagine these 10- and 13-year-old daughters. You've, you've seen a lot of kids that age, especially daughters. I shouldn't sound sexist or gender-biased, but uh, daughters who, who think they have to have not only the latest electronics, but the latest style, the latest fashion. And they, these parents were brave enough to basically say, look, you're not entitled to anything. Uh, well, maybe you are. You're entitled to, you know, have a roof over your heads and to have parents who love you. And we do love you. And therefore, guess what? We're not going to give you a lot of stuff. And we're not even going to give you an allowance. But we are going to give you some wonderful opportunities to work in the home, to do certain things that your mother or dad would have to do if you didn't do them. And you're going to keep track of those things. And when we come to the end of the week, you're going to get paid for the things you've remembered to do and done. And then you're going to have a bank account. A lot of families we work with have a family bank. They put the money in. But this particular family just opened accounts for their kids uh, at a local bank with the parents as co-signers. The kids have debit cards. But they not in only, their hands at all times. The yeah, parent, they can only the use them, them. When, the parent, when they go shopping with their parents or whatever. And here's the great thing. The parents go ahead and pay the kids interest on their regular commercial bank account because the bank account pays way too little. It's not enough to motivate savings. So these smart parents pay the kids 20% interest on the, on the amount of money they earn, which they save. And then we were actually talking to them today about you ought to earmark that savings account to go toward the child's college education because by paying for their education or even a part of it, even a percentage of it, they are going to feel ownership of that education and do much, much better in school. And they were telling us that they're already beginning to talk to their kids about this and having them pay part of their school fees and so on. And they were saying that's made their kids study harder and be more appreciative of school and work harder at school than all of the nagging and pushing and do your homework, do your homework that they could have ever done. You know, I heard a great idea this week from parents who just sent a child to college and he was totally irresponsible, just went off and played and partied and his grades were horrible and the parents were paying for it and they had had enough. So after the first semester, they went down to the loan office with their son and arranged for him to take out a loan for his education. And they said, if you get um, a B average, so that you, the lowest grade is B, or, you know, a B average, then 
will pay the loan. If not, you've got to pay the loan, bud. And I think that is a great idea. That gives the kid some ownership and some responsibility on what he's doing. Um, there's well, I think it's a good, let me just say, I, I hadn't heard that idea, Linda, and, you know, I love all of your ideas, but I don't always love the ones you repeat. And I think <laughs> that, that that's a good idea. If if That's a good catch-up idea if you've already got a kid who's well, sure. blowing it. Yeah. But much better to start early and actually have a child saving for his or her college education. Right. But the, I'm just saying there's a lot of ways to do this and make it really work. I, there's so many parents that are just throwing their hands in the air and saying, I don't know how to give my child ownership of his education. And, of course, the best one is just have him saving for it, thinking about it, and knowing that he's responsible for part of it. And then there's other ways. Right. And uh, the other thing that we're going to be talking about this evening to this group of parents is uh, sort of the broader subject of how do you well, really two other subjects. I'll mention one, and Linda will probably want to mention the other one. One being, how do you get a child out of the bubble in a bigger way than just earning a little money and paying part of their expenses? And two, how do you get them or encourage them or assist them in making good decisions in this pivotal later teen years where they're in danger of making so many really, really bad decisions? And uh, on the bubble thing, one of the things we're going to talk about tonight is that there is such a range of service that can be given by families together, doing things together as a family, uh, ranging from something really elaborate like going on a humanitarian expedition to Kenya or to Bolivia or somewhere. And a lot of families will say immediately, oh, oh, well, write me off on that one. I could never, never, never afford that. And many families simply can't. But I will say that the cost of going on some of these humanitarian expeditions for a week over Christmas or during the summer or whatever is actually less than a fancy trip to Disney World, and they will learn ever so much more on these humanitarian expeditions. But my point is whether it's something that elaborate or something as simple and basic and wonderful as going down to the homeless shelter in town and feeding the people who are there or going to a soup kitchen and bringing some produce and volunteering for the evening as a family, as a family, because there's something incredibly wonderful about that. And suddenly, at least for a couple of hours, your kids are out of that bubble. They're not doing things that give them any sense of entitlement at all. Oh, but that, that couple of hours lasts for a lifetime. I We've done this several times with our kids and just in downtown Salt Lake City at the Homeless Kitchen, which is amazing. We've done it within the family facility and also with just the men. And honestly, I don't think any of our kids will ever forget any one of those visits down there. It was so amazing. We had such a great time with them, and it just opens your eyes to what's really going on in the world. And so it's so important to do that with our kids. Boy, so many of them are in bubbles. It's incredible. Um, I will, I'll tell this story next time about my visit to Center City Ogden a couple of weeks ago. Remind me, Richard. Anyway, um, the last thing we want to talk about is how important it is to 
tell kids how to make good decisions. It's so important for them. And, how, and, to, and to help them to make those decisions in advance before they get to pressure situations. And I'll just say, uh, we know we've heard from some people that are tuning in every week to our radio show here, and I think we will spend the whole uh, the whole program next week talking about this topic, about making decisions in advance for a child and how important that is. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll give you a preview and a lead into it now for the rest of the time we have today. But next week, we'll go into some real detail about it. So, Linda, give a big sneak preview. <laughs> well, the thing is that the reason sometimes kids do make bad decisions is because they feel entitled they think, you know, I'm only a kid once. I'm going to just try this little white pill. I mean, you know, everybody's got to experience something. Or I'm just, how can I go through my whole life having never tasted a drink or smoked a cigarette or whatever? Um, whatever it is that is important to them not to do. But, you know, they just feel like I, I should be able to do what I want to, especially teenagers. Well, but let me just say the entitlement is enhanced or exacerbated by the peer pressure, by you know, a dozen kids standing around your child, a 15-year-old, saying, you're the only one here that hasn't tried this. What's wrong with you? Do you think you're holier than we are? Why don't you try this? And boy, kids get blindsided by peer pressure. Yeah, and it isn't just that. Also, you know, cheating on tests. Are you going to decide? Can you decide right now if you're, that you're never going to cheat on a test? And if you're talking to maybe a 12-year-old, they might say, uh, it's a little bit late. <laughs> uh, we hope not, but it really is important to get them thinking about, but what if, but what if, having come out of the Harvard Business School, Richard had us always going on case studies, case studies, case studies. So, you know, he says to this little child, um, uh, 10-year-old, let's see, what if you went into a class, you missed class yesterday, you didn't know there was a pop quiz, it a lot of your grade, the smartest girl in the class is sitting next to you, and you can see her paper so clearly. What are you going to do? And, you know, I think that happens to almost every child at some point in their life. And if they think to themselves, you know what, I'm just going to be honest. I'm going to look away. I'm not going to do that. That's what it takes for the child to really understand what it means to make a decision in advance and stick with it. So the exercise, in a nutshell, is to... And you don't do this as a quick fix where you just sit down with a kid for half an hour and get all this done. This is many sessions and you lead into it and you talk about it and so on. But the basic exercise is to give them a journal and reserve the, the last page of that journal for decisions in advance and explain that there are many decisions we can't make in advance. We can't decide who we're going to marry or where we're going to live or how many kids we're going to have, those are things you have to wait until you have all the inputs. But you can decide some things, and what are they? And, and kids from about, I always say from about eight, eight up, about eight years old and up, are very good at thinking of things they could decide now, even though they're not faced with those temptations yet. Being honest, not smoking, not driving in a car with a drunk driver. I mean, just on and on. But, but They'll come just, up with a lot of them. But not just the negatives. Also, right. I mean, the positives, I am going to go to college. No matter what, I am going to go to college. Right. Um, I am going to write down some things about what I expect from a marriage or whatever it is. I, I personally think, uh, now that you'll know that I disagree with Richard once in a while, uh, that eight is too young. <laughs> once in a while. Um, <laughs> 
eight, they just, they're darling, and, and we call it the age of accountability and all that, but, you know, I did this with a bunch of eight-year-olds once, and one of the little girls wrote down her, her decision in advance, which was, I will have a puppy. I think and, that's a fine decision. Well, I don't think that's what her parents had in no, mind. No, that's true. But I'm not sure what those parents wondered or thought about after that child got home and said, guess what? Mrs. Iris says I can have a puppy. I mean, you know, you got to be really careful with those eight-year-olds. But, well, but um, you, you can do a little explaining to an eight-year-old and really get them to focus on what are some things that I'm better off if I decide now than if I wait until my friends and others around me are pushing me to do the wrong thing? Then the important thing is don't write down more than one at a time. Have a good discussion about one decision. Give some of the case studies that Linda's mentioned. Make sure they've almost role-played in their mind exactly what they'll say. So we hope the very best for you. If you're interested in getting started uh, on the entitlement at your home, just go to entitlementtrap.com without the da, and it will give you some video and some suggestions of how to get going. And, of course, you can get the book there as well. And we'll see you next week, and we'll talk more about making decisions in advance. 